Uh, thanks to uh, Panganai for uh, reading for us. Uh, and it is great to be with you all this afternoon. Uh, and I say that it is great because there was a, a point in the day when I thought that I might not uh, be here. Uh, Jess has uh, been unwell over the weekend. Uh, and then Harriet uh, had a fall this morning with a, a mug in her hand and so cut her arm quite badly. And we've been in uh, A&E for most of the morning. She's had some stitches, but she's doing a lot better. She's, she'll be fine. Um, but there was a point this morning where our bathroom looked a little bit more like a scene from 2 Samuel uh, with blood everywhere and that kind of thing. Uh, than uh, it might normally do. And so praise the Lord that we are, we are here, we're with you this afternoon. Let me pray for us as we start. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you how it reveals to us that you're a God who is God alone. You're on your throne. And you're a God who is holy and demands that we are holy too, if we're to have any hope of relationship with you. And so, Father, we praise you for your Son who brings us into that relationship by his holiness not ours. And so in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, let me reiterate that uh, Harriet is fine. Uh, she's had some stitches. She's, she's doing all right at, uh, at home. But um, if you've been with us for the, the last couple of weeks and the start of this series, then you'll know by now that the world of 2 Samuel is quite different to the world of Bulawayo in 2022. I've been saying that the whole way through, and it's probably been highlighted for us, I think, on several occasions by the, the Game of Thrones-style drama that unfolds over the first five chapters of 2 Samuel. It's an epic period of Israel's history. It's a period of history in which we see David eventually ascend to the, the throne of Israel, but not before an ugly, bloody power struggle between the house of Saul on one hand and the house of David on the other. And it's a power struggle that has walked us through the graphic details of murder, of ambush, of treason, of beheadings, of executions, and even of mass war. It's been a gripping historical account of a way of life that I think most of us probably find hard to identify with because we don't tend to carry swords around town. And most like, and the most likely place that you'll die in Zimbabwe is not on the back of a horse, but in a Honda Fit. And apologies to, apologies to all Honda Fit owners. But beyond the blood and guts of betrayal, treason, and beheadings, there is another passage of history before us this afternoon, another event in history that I think illustrates even more just how different the world of 2 Samuel is to the world of uh, Bulawayo today. And I wonder if you, uh, if you managed to pick it. Uh, that, I suppose, it depends on whether or not you've uh, read chapter 5. We only just read chapter 6. Because over chapter 5 and 6, the rise of David uh, continues to progress, and it does so through three distinct events. First, in chapter 5, verses 6 to 16, the Lord gives David the city of Jerusalem. And Adrian, you can put up this outline now. Uh, in 5, 6 to 16, the Lord gives David the city of Jerusalem. Second, in 5, 17 to 25, the Lord twice grants David victory over the Philistines. And then third, in 6, 1 to 23, the ark of the Lord comes to dwell in Jerusalem. And you'll see from this outline, this goes all the way through to the end of uh, chapter 8, because I think this is one whole section describing, showing, revealing to us the rise of uh, the king, uh, the rise of David. We're only going to the end of uh, chapter 6 today. And so three distinct events, which all move the story forward as we continue to watch the rise of David, rise of the king. But which of them, which of them shows us most just how different that world is to our world today? Is it the conqueror of Jerusalem? 
and David's choice of some uh, un-PC language that we see in chapter 5? Uh, is it the Lord's double defeat of the Philistines, uh, Israel's historic enemy? Or is it the 20-kilometer journey of a small chest from outside the city into the center of Israel? Of course, in one sense, it's a trick question, isn't it? Because they're all pretty alien to our experience of life here and now. But of the three events, which of them do you think is, is most foreign to our world, to the world that you and I live in? I'd like to suggest to us that it is the final event, the one that we heard read for us today, and it's one that dominates the whole of chapter 6, the one with the, the shocking death of a Levite, who with very good intentions reaches out and catches the ark of the Lord from falling, and for that the Lord puts him to death. And, and which in turn was the catalyst for what I think we would consider as a, a rather a drastic overreaction by the king, who then humiliates himself in front of his people. Don't get me wrong, all three events in chapter 5 and 6 reveal the rise of David as king over Israel, but it's chapter 6 that gives him, David, and us just a little bit of a wake-up call when it comes to relating to God. But before we get there, let's uh, then run through the first two events uh, rather briefly, those events in chapter 5. You see, prior to 2 Samuel chapter 5, Jerusalem as a city has never been under Jewish control. It's a city that belongs to the Jebusites, inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And the city itself was something of a, a fortress in ancient times. Uh, we think of uh, Jerusalem as always being uh, under the control of Israel. But that only takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 5. In fact, Israel had tried uh, and failed to conquer Jerusalem in the past. And so there's some, there's some shared history here, I suppose, between the Jebusites and the Israelites, which gives the insults in chapter 5 just that little bit of an added sting. You see, um, Israel is set up on a, a mountain and surrounded by valleys on three sides, which meant that attacking Jerusalem was almost impossible. You're always at a disadvantage. You are always on lower ground, uh, trying to attack higher ground, working your way uphill. And so in chapter 5, the Jebusites, they mock David and Israel in verse 6, saying, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. One of the obvious methods of defending the city was simply to throw or roll huge rocks down the side of the mountain. They would basically take out anyone and anything in their path. It's a pretty genius move, and it didn't require you to have good sight or much mobility. And so you could quite legitimately have a blind person sitting in a wheelchair with a huge stash of large rocks, taking out three, four, maybe five of your best soldiers at once. Now, whether that actually happened or not, I'm not sure. I need to do a bit of research. But either way, it's insulting, right? The, the blind and the lame will ward off your best army simply by throwing rocks down the side of the mountain. But David is no rookie when it comes to warfare, is he? Uh, verse 8 of chapter 5, David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Now, let's be clear. David's use of rather un-PC language here does not mean that he hates all blind people and all lame people. 
but rather he's taking the very same insult that was thrown at him by the Jebusites and turning it around as fuel for motivation and strengthening his, his men in battle. And we all do that, don't we? We're insulted and it motivates us to work harder, to play harder, to fight harder. But David's not just a brilliant motivator. He's a seasoned pro and a skilled tactician in the art of war. And what's more, he's obviously watched the Lord of the Rings and specifically the scene where the orcs breached the wall at Helm's Deep, no? Because as, as any true Lord of the Rings fan will know, the way that the wall was breached at Helm's Deep was through the water shaft at the base of that wall. And of course, I'm having a bit of fun here. Obviously, the Lord of the Rings came several thousands of years uh, after David uh, conquered Jerusalem. But the weakness in the city of Jerusalem was through the water shaft. And David attacks the water shaft. And verse 7, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. The Israelites, they overwhelm the Jebusites, they conquer Jerusalem, which now becomes the capital city of Israel. And Jerusalem was a politically sensitive and I think savvy choice for the capital. Uh, again, Adrian, if you can show the image to, uh, to my right. Here we see the, the land apportioned for the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. In the bottom, in the red, was Judah. That was the tribe which uh, followed after David. Uh, all other tribes, uh, all other colors, were those that followed Saul. And here David chooses a capital city where? On the very boundary between Judah, the tribe that followed him, and all other uh, tribes, as a way of, I think, making peace. As saying, actually, here, here we go. We're not going to put it at Hebron, which was the historical city of David's throne, right in the heart of uh, Judah, but right on the boundary between two warring nations, as it were, that now become one. It was a pre previously divided nation, Judah to the south, all other tribes to the north, and David moves his throne from the city of Hebron, deep within Judah, now to the very border that once divided them. And so for the very first time, Jerusalem becomes the political center in Israel, the symbol of national strength and security in the land, and the seat of the Davidic throne. And it would also shortly become the center of religious life in the people of God, and ultimately, it would become known as Zion, the city of gods, and the great symbol of eternal hope. And so the summary in chapter 5, verse 8, tells us that David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. The rise of David, the rise of the king, is revealed at least in part by the events of 5, 6 to 16. The Lord gives David the city of Jerusalem. But the rise of David is also revealed in part by, by the Lord granting David victory over the Philistines, not once, but twice in 517 to 25. And there's great irony here in these defeats because the Philistines are the nation responsible for the death of the first king of Israel, the death of Saul, David's rival to the throne. It's ironic because the nation that the Lord uses to bring about the fall of Saul is the very same nation that he uses to show us the rise of David. First, in verse 19, David inquires of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? To which the Lord replies, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hands. And like a flood that washes giant boulders down a, a, a valley that buries and crushes and destroys everything in its way, so the Lord washed away the Philistines before David and his men. 
But these Philistines are a little bit slow to learn, and so they regroup and come back for round two. They want seconds. And again, David inquires of the Lord. But this time the Lord says in verse 23, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come against them opposite them at the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of a marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone up before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Even though the Philistines may have fallen by the sword of David and his men, David tells us in no uncertain terms that it was in fact the Lord and the Lord's army who struck them down. See, the rise of David is also revealed in part by the Lord granting David victory over the Philistines, not once, but twice. But as I said at the beginning, the, the real progression in the story of 2 Samuel this week comes not in the battles against the Jebusites or the Philistines, but the real action in the story this week comes as a small box, a small chest, makes a 20-kilometer journey from Baal Judah to Jerusalem. And the small chest I'm referring to, of course, is the Ark of God, uh, 6 verse 2, otherwise known as the Ark of the Covenants. The Ark of God was built back in Exodus, and it was about 1.2 meters by about 70 centimeters by about 70 centimeters. So it's not a big thing. It's about the size of a, a decent uh, chest. It's made of acacia wood, and it's, part, and it's plated with gold. And 6 verse 3, it's called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. You see, the Ark was the object in all Israel that most closely associated Yahweh, the Lord, to be the God of Israel. It was the place of divine revelation. It was the place of divine relationship where God would meet with his people and speak with them. But as highlighted for us in the passage by the language of the God of armies, the God of armies of Israel who sits enthroned in the cherubim, the ark was the footstool of God's invisible throne, high and lifted up. And so the imagery in chapter 6 is not of a small box making an insignificant journey, but rather it's a triumphant entry of the king of kings, seated on his throne, coming into that city which is going to become his royal dwelling, the, the future home of the temple, the meeting place between God and man in this world. And if we view chapter 6 in that light, then all the pomp and ceremony, I think, begins to make a little bit more sense. But before we get there, we need to remember, and most of us have probably forgotten this, that the ark, the ark has been chilling in the house of Abinadab for the last 20 years. If you can remember back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, and 6, which most of you can't, in fact, probably none of you can, then you'll know that after receiving another beating by the Philistines, the Ark of God was captured and taken into Philistine territory for about seven months. But that didn't go super well for the Philistines. Why? Well, because not just anybody can come into the presence of the Lord and expect to live, least of all his enemies. This is, I think, one of those things that we just don't grasp in our world today. This is just so foreign to us, isn't it, and, and to our Christian culture, where we tend to view God, don't we, as a kind of cute and cuddly Father Christmas kind of character whose sole purpose for being in life is to give me what I want. That is not the God of the Bible. In Exodus, in Exodus he reveals himself in thunder and lightning like a consuming fire that causes the earth to shake. 
So terrifying, in fact, that when Moses says to the people of, people of Israel, come, let's go and meet with God, they're all like, ah, I corner. <laughs> Moses, you go up. Me, I'm staying here. If we go up, we're dead. It reminds me of that line from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. A young Susan prepares to meet Aslan, the king, for the very first time. And Mr. Beaver says to her, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is, is he safe? I, sh I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king. You see, throughout the Old Testament, there is a real and frightening tension at the heart of the relationship between God and his people. How on earth is a holy God going to live in the middle of an unholy people and not just break out and incinerate them all? Not because he's unstable, not because he's vindictive, not because he's impatient uh, or unfaithful, but because he is holy and we are not. And so when the ark of God was captured and brought into the midst of the Philistines, God's enemies, is there any wonder why after a few months they're like, ah, send this one back. Send it back to Israel. And even when the ark is returned to Israel, this is what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 6. As a, an Israelite a town rejoices and receives this, this ark back into Israelite territory. 1 Samuel 6, 19. And the Lord struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, an Israelite town, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messages to the inhabitants of Kiriath Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. See, the Lord is a holy God, and Israel are not. And that breathes a terrifying tension into the heart of the relationship between Yahweh and his people. But after 20 years in the house of Abinadab, and now with the kingdom secured, Jerusalem established as the capital city and the Philistines defeated, so David decides that now it's the time to bring God back. Now is the time to bring God back into the city, into the midst of his people. But David is just a little bit thoughtless in doing so. Uzzah is even more thoughtless. And in a moment, the Lord reminds us all that he has not changed. He is still utterly holy. Uh, again, if you can put the next um, slide up for us, that'd be great. Here's a modern replica of the ark. I googled this uh, for us all. And as you can quite clearly see, God designed it with poles to be carried not carted. 
And in fact, when giving the Levites the instructions of how to care for and move the ark, the Lord says in Numbers 7 verse 9 that it was to be carried on the shoulder. And so whilst David builds the ark a, a, a new cart, that's well-intentioned, 2 Samuel 6.3 makes it just a, a little bit thoughtless on David's behalf. Maybe even more well-intentioned, however, is Uzzah's reaction, reaching out to prevent the ark from falling uh, onto the ground as the oxen stumble, verse 6. And in a flash, the Lord reminds us that even though it's been 20 years, nothing has changed. He has not changed. And so, verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. You see, the death of Uzzah, as hard as it is to stomach, reminds us all that there is a terrifying tension at the heart of the relationship between Yahweh and his people because he is a holy God and we are not. Now, I'm aware that this is not so fashionable these days to think of God in these terms. More often than not, when we think of God, don't we? We think of him as being uh, kind of a one whose love never ends, unfailing faithfulness, an unending goodness. And those things are true. Don't get me wrong, those things are good and right for us to dwell on, but they're not a complete picture. And so if we fail to emphasize this somewhat frightening side of God, then all we're doing is undermining his holiness. And if we do that, then we end up with a warped view of of who God is, and ultimately we end up with a weak and pathetic gospel. Because if God is not utterly holy, then in the same breath we're saying that the cross was unnecessary. If we fail to emphasize the terrifying holiness of God, then we're downplaying the need for us to be holy. And so what we're actually saying is, it wasn't necessary for Christ to suffer and die in order to make us holy. But in a flash, God sends a terrifying reminder to David and those of us reading on that nothing has changed. The Lord is holy. And David gets it, doesn't he? Verse 9 of uh, 2 Samuel 6. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittites. David gets a bit of a fright, doesn't he? A bit of a wake-up call. And he ends up sounding a little bit like the Israelites all the way back in the Exodus. He puts the journey on pause, and he drops the ark off with Obed-Edom for a few months. And I, I always wonder how that conversation went with Obed-Edom. David shows up with 30,000 of his men and the ark, and Uzzah, I suppose, um, somewhere has just died. And he's like, do you mind if, if I just drop this thing off with you for a few months? It's a little bit dangerous. I wouldn't let your kids near it. You see, the presence of the Lord is a fear, fearful thing because he's holy and we're not. But you see, the presence of the Lord can also bring great blessing and security and peace and protection and provision. And so when David hears that the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom, verse 12, he decides, oh, okay, maybe we should have another crack at this. Let's try to bring the ark into Jerusalem. But he's learned his lesson. And so this time he does it with all the pomp and ceremony befitting the king of kings entering Jerusalem on his throne. Every six steps, they sacrifice an ox and a calf. Assuming they're about 10 kilometers out now, and the average step is about 75 centimeters. 
Then between here and Tau, right? On that day, they sacrificed about 2,500 oxen and 2,500 calves. And the spiritual significance of the number 2,500 is that it represents a whole lot of oxen and calves. Right? David has grasped the holiness of God and the need for a sacrifice to allow the Lord to dwell in the midst of the people. This is the only way that a holy God can dwell with an unholy people. And it turns the relationship from curse to blessing. In fact, David takes on a a whole lot of priest-like symbolism in chapter 6, doesn't he? As he ushers, as he brings Yahweh, the holy God, into the midst of his people. Did you notice that he strips himself of royal robes and instead he's wearing an ephod, verse 14. He's dressed more like a priest than a king. Not only that, he humbles himself before the Lord and dances with all his might, verse 14. He humbles himself so much, in fact, that when he finally returns home to to Michal, verse 21, she says, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his uh, servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Let's be very clear. David is not naked, but he certainly wasn't dressed like a king. He humbled himself to the extent that he may well have looked like a homeless person who had lost his mind. But verse 21, he says it was before the Lord. It was to bring the Lord into the midst of the people. And so this too reveals the rise of the king. Because after 20 years, David is the one to once again bring the Lord into the midst of Israel, into the center of his people. You see, the the key development and the theme of kingship this week in the establishment of the throne in Israel, the, the place of the crown and God's promise to bless, is that a king has a vital role to play in establishing the relationship between God and his people, between the Lord and Israel between the holy God and the unholy people. The king has a vital role to play in establishing that relationship. And so in closing this week, it is worth, I think, meditating on the real and terrifying tension that we see at the heart of the relationship between God and humanity, between God and us. The Lord is holy and we are not, and that is a big problem. Anything short of total wholehearted obedience to him and his word, wholehearted total obedience would mean that in an instant he would break out against us and we, well, we would burst into flames. Nothing left but charred shadows of our bodies burnt into the pavement. So often we like to talk, don't we, in terms of the blessing of the Lord coming upon people who keep his word and the whole point is that we don't keep his word. There's a real and frightening tension at the heart of the relationship between God and people. How on earth is this relationship going to work? Well, spoiler alert, ultimately the relationship between God and Israel doesn't work. Several hundred years later, after years and years and years of being patient with a sinful and rebellious people, in the end, the prophet Ezekiel watches on as the Lord, this consuming fire in all his glory, departs from the temple and leaves his people behind. Ezekiel 10 verses 18 and 19. The the relationship between God and his people is in tatters because both the king, after king, after king, after king, and the people 
continue in their unclean and unholy ways. And in one sense, you and I, we're no different, are we? We're no different to the people of Israel. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we're not perfect. We fail, we sin, we're not clean, we're unholy. We don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We don't love our neighbor as ourselves. And the problem, of course, is that if the Lord is holy, then he cannot relate to an unholy people without consuming them in fire. But here's the thing. In Jesus, we have a king who is also a priest. And so the answer is to run to Jesus because in him, the terrifying tension between God and man has been resolved once for all. In Jesus, we have a king from David's line who humbled himself, who humiliated himself, who gave himself as the sacrifice in order to bring the Lord back into the midst of his people and ensure that the relationship returned from curse to blessing. The big question that we're faced with all this afternoon is, will you despise the king on the cross like David's wife? Or will you honor him like the servants? Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for your word as always, uh, even when it's a hard word, uh, even when we see you in a likeness that sometimes we find difficult to uh, accept. But Father, we thank and praise you that you are a God who is holy, who is completely holy. We praise you that no one can turn around to you and ever say that you were wrong, that you were unfaithful, that you sinned, that you did something bad or evil, that you were unclean. Father, we praise you that we can trust you. We can trust you because of your holiness. And yet, Father, we recognize as we look at ourselves compared to you that we see that we are people who are unholy, desperately in, in need of someone to bring us into your presence. And Father, we praise you for Jesus, the one from the line of David, the one who humbled himself, humiliated himself, and ultimately gave himself as the sacrifice that brings us into your presence, that we can stand there and not perish, that our relationship with you is now based on blessing, not curse, because of all that your Son has done for us. And so in his name we pray. Amen.